Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally, voidware prohibited, must be 18 or older to enter, no purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Aria Marketing. Aria Marketing is an award-winning healthcare communications agency providing healthcare IT companies with strategic expertise, thought leadership-driven PR programs, compelling creative and superior client service. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. We are thrilled to be talking with the super smart Dr. Jennifer Gardy today. She's the Deputy Director of Surveillance, Data, and Epidemiology with the Gates Foundation. Not only is she part of an integral mission to stomp out malaria across the globe, but she happens to be a pretty great author, TEDx speaker, and contributor to so many sources, we can't name them all. So let's get started. Where's home base for you? Uh, it is technically Chicago now. Uh, from Vancouver originally, moved down to the States not very long ago to take this position with the Gates Foundation. And although they're based in Seattle, you spend a lot of your life just traveling around on the road. And so you can really kind of work remotely. So I picked Chicago. It's where my partner lives. So uh, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> That's oh, great. Congratulations. That's really Thank you. Yeah, it's a fantastic new job. I love it. It's in the senior leadership team, but it is really busy. (laughs) It is beyond busy. I don't think I've ever been this busy. And as a university professor, you always complain about how busy you are. And uh, yeah, the universe is just like, oh, you thought that was bad? Well, (laughs) let me show you something. (laughs) Wow. Are you traveling more than 75% of the time? I'd say it's probably about uh, maybe about 60% at this point. That's wow. impressive. That's, that's <laughs> Pretty crazy, yeah. <laughs> it helps that uh, my partner kind of does the same thing. He's a consultant, so he's on the road all the time. It's like, I don't think it would work otherwise. <laughs> not a yeah. not a lifestyle conducive to stability. No, actually, both Robin and I are familiar with it. The company that we were with before had us on the road probably have debatably close to 80% of the time. And that was for, oh, like, crazy. for me like three years. And you're like, yep, that, that is 
that is definitely disruptive. It can't, <laughs> it's not the most yeah. stable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When, when but, people ask you where you live and your first answer is American Airlines, that's never a good thing. Oh, yeah. No, no kidding. In my Twitter bio says Chicago, Seattle are on a plane. <laughs> there you go. All right. So, Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. We are uh, really excited to speak with accomplished women in health and health IT and are kind of on a journey to help other people learn about the industry. Because even by being part of it for the last decade or so, we ourselves realized like, how complicated healthcare can be. And so both Robin and I feel like we have a pretty good handle on our own piece of the health IT puzzle but we're talking to women all over to try to understand their piece to see if we can start putting more and more together. So if you wouldn't mind, could you please take us through a little bit about your career journey, where you are now and how you got there and maybe, you know, some stories or anything colorful that you want to add into it? <laughs> it would be my pleasure. So I'm Jennifer Gardy, and I am currently the Deputy Director of Surveillance Data and Epidemiology within the malaria team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And what I do in that role is really a culmination of all the areas that I've spent the last, uh, say, about 15 years of my scientific career investigating. So I'm looking at things like how do we use computer computational biology and genome sequencing as a tool to understand pathogen evolution and pathogen transmission. I'm looking at how do we take different types of disparate data and integrate them in order to derive really actionable insights um, in the public health and in the global health space. I'm doing things like building out dashboards and using techniques from information visualization and user-centered design uh, and pulling it all together in this very sort of fast-paced, innovative, and agile organization where we're always looking for the next new cool bit of tech. So how I ended up here, uh, if you want to go right back to the beginning, it starts with a Dustin Hoffman movie. Uh, this is probably not. I love this interview movie. already. <laughs> you, this is not how you should choose your job. I do not recommend this to people uh, in general. I think I'm the one in a thousand people for whom this walked, uh, worked out properly. But I remember being a teenager in the mid 90s and seeing Outbreak. Do you remember that one with the, uh, the infected monkey that they're trying oh, yeah. to find? Yeah, hemorrhagic fever outbreak. I saw that. And I thought that looks so cool. I want to be Dustin Hoffman tracking infectious diseases, chasing this monkey around. And so I went to uh, university thinking that I'd study microbiology, infectious diseases. I started off on that path, um, but then I found that genetics was just as interesting. This was uh, right about the time that the very first genome of a free living organism had been sequenced. It was a bacterial uh, genome, Haemophilus influenzae. The human genome was still about uh, six years off at this point. But there was this emerging field of um, looking at genomes, looking at all of the genetic instructions that code a particular living thing to get clues as to you know, how that organism ticks. So I started to think a combination of microbiology and genomics might be an interesting path to follow. And I kind of ended up in my career somewhat accidentally after that point. I'd taken a graduate diploma program. It was sort of an interstitial thing that you could do between your bachelor's degree and moving on to grad school. And you had to choose your courses for this program, review them with a course advisor. 
this was back in the year uh, 2000, I selected my course and sat down with the advisor and she said, you know, we've got this new course that's starting up this year. It's in this brand new field, something that we don't really know a lot about, but we think it's going to be really big. So you should think about taking this course and uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, bioinformatics. And so I said, okay, this seems kind of interesting. I like computers, bioinformatics. If it's going to be a big thing, might as well take the class and, and see what happens. And I found it fascinating. Um, it was one of the only classes that I'd taken as a university student where every time the prof would ask a question, I would shoot my hand up. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. So like two weeks into the class, he's like, uh, does anybody besides Jen want to answer this question? So I thought moving forward as a PhD student wanting to go to grad school, uh, I wanted to find something that would combine this newfound interest in bioinformatics and computational biology with pathogens, with microbiology and infectious disease. So I was lucky enough to find a lab that was just starting up. The PI, the principal investigator, she was recruiting her first grad students, and she wanted them to work on computational biology projects, studying the genomes of infectious pathogens. So ended up going back to Vancouver uh, to Simon Fraser University and studying under this amazing mentor, Fiona Brinkman, and yeah, doing a PhD in computational biology, where it was uh, sort of a mix of um, techniques from machine learning. We just called it data mining back then, though. Um, some other straight up classical bioinformatics techniques, a lot of web design, a little bit of user interface design as well. Uh, and that really kind of set me on my, my permanent path. From there, I did a postdoc where I focused again on bioinformatics methods development in the infectious disease space. I did some network visualization, some infoviz stuff. And then I was recruited in 2009 to join the British Columbia Center for Disease Control. So eventually, after taking this very long detour into computational biology uh, and through academia, now equipped with a PhD, I got to come back to a CDC-like organization and kind of close the loop on that Dustin Hoffman dream. So I spent the last uh, decade working there and really sort of pioneered this emerging discipline uh, in public health called genomic epidemiology, where if we sequence the genome of a pathogen uh, or a series of pathogens from a particular outbreak or epidemic and throw a whole bunch of computational biology at it, we can start to make inferences about who transmitted to whom. We can reconstruct the outbreak. We can understand the transmission dynamics at work in that epidemic. And those are all insights that are really important to understand what's happening in terms of disease transmission and to go in and control that outbreak and hopefully prevent the future ones. So it's sort of a mix of um, <clears throat> computational biology, bioinformatics, genomic skills, um, but all the other stuff that I did along the way, the network analysis, the information visualization, user-centered design, all of those bits of IT kind of get rolled up in there too. And then there's those straight up day-to-day -day exciting stuff like you know managing a high-performance computing cluster. So I did that for 10 years. And then got a little anxious for a change. I was really excited to find a position where instead of doing sort of research that seems to move at a bit of a glacial pace, as things often do in academia, I wanted to join an organization that was a little more faster paced, um, something where instead of kind of doing the work and carving out sort of small research projects, I could take a bigger look, bigger picture view, um, and really be all about strategy and relationship building and putting lots and lots of different parts of the puzzle pieces together. Um, so when I was offered an opportunity at the Gates Foundation, I 
jumped. And yeah, it's uh, it's now sort of the culmination of everything I did over the last few years. Uh, and I still kind of feel a little bit like Dustin Hoffman in Outbreak, only uh, instead of a book you with hemorrhagic fever, we're just trying to eliminate malaria. So that's my career in a very big nutshell. I, I feel like you got to get rid of the just because you're just trying to eliminate malaria. You know, you were at the... Um, <laughs> The, the Canadian CDC, right? And now you have this opportunity to make this major global impact with this really unique hybrid background of all things healthcare, health IT, science, research. You have a great deal of knowledge and experience through your educational and professional expertise. What is it like to be there on this global mission? Yeah, so it's really exciting working uh, on the global health scale. My work over the last 10 years when I was based out of the British Columbia Center for Disease Control was really fun, uh, and it was fantastic, and we were working with great people, but it was very limited in geographic scope. I was basically looking after tuberculosis transmission in British Columbia. Um, that was sort of my portfolio that I worked on. So I always wanted to do something a little bigger, a little better, a little more exciting. Uh, so now working with the Gates Foundation in the malaria team, we have a goal of eliminating malaria around the world by 2040. And that is not long up. That's 21 years from now. So if we want to do that, I mean, we know that there's been many, many places where malaria has been successfully eliminated, and it takes a variety of interventions. But once you can stop one transmission cycle, you know, for your listeners that aren't malaria aware, um, malaria is spread by a mosquito vector. Um, so the mosquito bites an infected person, they pick up the malaria parasite, and they can uh, then, when they feed on somebody else, uh, they can transmit that pathogen to that individual. So if you can break that transmission cycle, either by getting malaria out of your people so that when the mosquitoes bite people and take a blood meal, they're not sucking up any parasites, there's just no more disease there, or by interfering with the mosquitoes somehow, you actually have a chance to eliminate disease within your region. So we've realized that um, one size doesn't fit all. It doesn't fit all when it comes to malaria control. Different regions and different regions within a country too, different pockets, you know, different states or different provinces, uh, really need their own sort of bespoke, tailored approach. So what a lot of my role is, is using data. Some of that's genomic data from the parasite. Some of it's genomic data from the mosquito. A lot of it is just data, data, um, case counts, uh, things like that. How many cases of malaria did we have in this area? What's the temperature in this area? What's the rainfall? How many mosquitoes were we seeing? Um, and even some way more interesting data types, like using satellite data to identify where remote villages are located, where we might need to get in um, and provide bed nets or the spray that we use to try and uh, get rid of the uh, mosquito vectors. We integrate all these different and disparate data types together in order to figure out how best to deploy our resources. You know, we've got bed nets, we've got drugs, we've got insecticide sprays, but we can't use them everywhere all the time. We have to be smart about how we distribute those resources. And so data uh, and advanced analytics is really one of the tools that we use to figure out, okay, what are we going to prioritize? Where are we going to put our interventions? And uh, do we think, where, the, where do we think they're going to give the best bang for the buck? Jennifer, this is Joy. Can I ask a couple questions? For sure. One is, thanks. So, okay, I'm looking <laughs> at different different regions and malaria cases, and it seems that the African region bears, 
you know, the majority of the cases worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's bringing up for me, okay, well, how much do environmental issues come up, like potentially climate change? And then the bit, uh, other big, you know, key words that we hear a lot are social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. people's, people's access to health. So when you're looking at your data and, you know, collecting all this information of who's being affected and, and how, how much of that is actually outside of just um, healthcare organizations, but looking at some of these maybe like somewhat intangible or less tangible uh, variables that go into it? Oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic questions both. So <clears throat> the first one around uh, environment, it plays a huge role in epidemiology and sort of the study of infectious diseases. We talk about the epidemiological triangle, and so every disease is, is a function of three things. It's a function of the pathogen itself, it's a function of the host that that pathogen lives in, and it's a function of the environment. So with malaria, obviously, you've got the parasite itself, and you've got parasite dynamics playing a role, um, drug resistance that might be common in one strain of the parasite, but not in the others. Host is obviously a huge issue. If somebody um, doesn't have access to um, insecticide, bug spray, uh, and bed net to keep them safe from bug bites at night, uh, that's going to make that host more vulnerable. But environment is a huge thing, and it really contributes to the the presence of uh, the mosquito vector. So we know that in areas that are heavily forested, we're going to find a lot of mosquitoes. And there's some pockets hanging on, particularly in Southeast Asia. You've got countries where in urban areas, malaria has been completely eliminated. You can go to a city anywhere in Southeast Asia and you'll generally be fine. But if you get out into the forested regions, um, there's very, very high burden areas, like lots of malaria cases in these particular forest regions. And we also know that the way we interact with uh, the environment changes our vulnerability to infectious diseases. So what you're seeing right now um, in places like Guyana, for example, is you've got these heavily forested regions, but people are now entering into those spaces and doing logging. Uh, They're doing mining and other activities that are bringing them into regular contact with these mosquito populations that were previously just sort of hanging out in this uh, remote forest that hardly anybody ever visited. So environment very much uh, affects our our susceptibility to infectious diseases. And with climate change, uh, we know that the what we call the distribution of the vector, the the places that mosquitoes can live in, where it's sort of warm enough and wet enough, those are changing. Um, a very interesting paper just came out about a week ago. Um, many of our friends and colleagues were involved in uh, doing the analysis and writing it up, but it shows how the vector the mosquito uh, population in the United States is going to change over the next 40 years as a result of climate change and as a result of changing human mobility. And it shows just how far north mosquitoes like the type that spread Zika virus or dengue virus, just how far north those are going to spread. Now, as to the second part of your question around the social determinants of health, yeah, this is huge. Um, it's 
malaria and many other infectious diseases are very much um, issues of access to care and access to interventions. There's a lot of things that you can do to prevent malaria. We have pills. I mean, anybody that's traveling to uh, a part of the world where there's a risk of malaria will be given a prescription for anti-malarial drugs and you're told to, you know, start taking them just before you go, take one every day while you're there, take them for a couple days when you come back. And it prevents malaria. We also uh, can afford um, bug spray with, you know, lots of DEET in it. We can afford a net around our bed to keep bugs from biting us at night. We can afford um, insecticidal sprays that will kill any bugs in our house. But if you're growing up in a place where you don't have access to these interventions, then obviously malaria is going to be a risk. So it is as much uh, a social disease, a sort of a function of the environment, uh, as it is uh, just a function of the pathogen. So really when it comes to um, malaria control programs, a lot of our efforts are focused on that sort of addressing fundamental inequities in the healthcare system and ensuring that people have access to care, they have access to appropriate diagnostic tests and medicines and simple interventions like these bed nets and, and insecticidal sprays that can save their life. And the beautiful thing about that is when you address those systemic inequities, um, when you address those base or root causes, you don't just fix malaria, you fix a lot of other things too. REM Marketing is an award-winning integrated healthcare communications agency providing unmatched industry and strategy expertise, thought leadership-driven PR programs, compelling, creative, and superior client service. For over 20 years, ARIA has maintained its reputation as healthcare's leading PR agency, working with some of the most innovative healthcare organizations. From startups to Fortune 500 companies, ARIA marketing services include public relations, strategic planning, branding and positioning, social media, and creative services. Get in touch with them today at info at ariamarketing.com to take your PR and marketing program to the next level. You hit a really important word. You said the word access. And I don't want to talk about mm-hmm. healthcare access for patients. I want to talk about your access is a brilliant, smart woman coming from the Canadian CDC, to the Gates Foundation. I would imagine Mm -hmm. the tools and resources at your disposal granted the CDC, the really big organization, that maybe the (laughs) Gates Foundation has some cooler stuff. Could you tell us about (laughs) some of the things you've gained access to in working for such uh, an organization that may have access to resources that, quite frankly, a a lot of places don't? Yeah, you know, the really amazing thing about the Gates Foundation is that we're a people organization. We're not we're not a stuff organization. We're a people organization. And we invest in people and we invest in ideas. So when we're um, going out and, you know, eliminating malaria, it's not my team that's going out there and doing it. We're not out there, um, you know, setting up the bed nets and, and doing the spraying and doing these mass drug administrations. We're working with partners on the ground. Sometimes that is uh, an NGO partner. Uh, sometimes it's another funder. A lot of the times it's academic labs and sometimes it's even industry. But we are working with the people that are out there 
are actually doing. And where our role comes in, um, we're really sort of a, a convener and supporter. So we have this very privileged position in that because we're such a, a well-known entity, uh, we can really take a look at everything that's happening in, in a particular space. We're, we're very familiar with the academic research that's happening in the malaria world. We're very fam uh, familiar with the different companies that are working with things like satellite data or developing mobile apps for uh, healthcare workers to go out and do surveys in the field. We're very familiar with the NGOs and the organizations that are out there in country that have very strong connections and very strong engagement with national uh, healthcare systems, with um, community health clinics, with the private clinics that are often a place where many, many people go to access care, the pharmacies, or you know, even a local healer. We can kind of see the whole landscape from where we fit. So the way we work is we sit down and think with our technical expertise on, say, the malaria team, we think about, okay, if we want to get to malaria elimination by 2040, what do we need to do in the next five years? What are the key strategic actions that we need to take? So we map out this very evidence-based strategy, and it might um, cover aspects of developing new drugs or vaccines or rolling out bed nets in a larger area or getting a better understanding of why we can't eliminate the last few cases in this one particular setting. So we sit down and come up with a strategy. Then, based on our knowledge of who's who out there in the world, we basically sort of assemble these crack teams to say, all right, you know, you're on this. Here's your task for the next two years or three years or five years. We need you to do this. We know that you are the world leading experts in this area and that nobody has better connections into this country than you do. Uh, like, go forth and, and do this work because it's going to help advance our strategy. So it's a really interesting position to be in and that you get to take that very big kind of flyover um, look and you get to do one of my favorite things which is connecting people and building relationships and putting together these multidisciplinary teams where you might have you know community health workers you might have um, mobile app developers you might have clinicians you might have policymakers all working together around the same problem all right so let's transition to our next question which is going to require you to put your magical hat on. So think of <laughs> good job. <laughs> any sort I, I packed it on this business trip. <laughs> All right, good. We want to we want to think about some sort of utopian future. And basically, if you could, at the snap of your fingers, solve any problem at this juncture worldwide in health or health IT, what would it be and why? Uh, the one problem that I would solve in health, uh, in health would be ensuring that everybody on this planet has a, a safe home, a, a safe, sturdy, uh, you know, high quality dwelling. Um, I really think that when you look at all of the social determinants of health, definitely one of the biggest ones is access to adequate housing. Um, this is huge. I spent the last 10 years working on tuberculosis, and we know that TB transmission that happens in a place like British Columbia or happens in a place like Seattle or like Chicago, a lot of that is amongst vulnerable populations that don't have access to housing. 
housing. But you look at the degree of the problem elsewhere, sub-Saharan Africa or parts of South America, where um, a lot of individuals are living in slums, poorly ventilated slums. Um, TB transmission is obviously going to be huge there, but also any other infectious disease. When you're living in a sort of shantytown or a slum environment where there's no sewage, um, any sort of diarrheal disease, anything that's carried um, through the fecal-oral transmission route, you're going to have high rates of that. Anywhere you've got standing water because you don't have, you know, covered sewers or covered water sources, you're going to have mosquitoes and that's going to create a risk for malaria, for Zika, for dengue, for all of these things. If you've got rats running around in a slum, you've got a risk of Lassa fever. Um, really adequate housing and uh, a well-planned community for that housing where there is access to sewage, where there is access to clean drinking water. You solved that problem and you solved about a thousand more by extension. I can, yeah, that is definitely, that's about the loftiest answer that we've heard to date. And um, that's a great one. When it, and actually what's coming to mind, my husband's actually from the country of Venezuela, which has been in a blackout for the last mm-hmm. five days. And when you're thinking, when I hear about, you know, people's access to food or water or shelter, like absolutely, those are the necessities. And so curious to know, you know, what would it be like, whose responsibility is it to make sure that everybody has um, a safe place to call home? And I don't know, just get interesting politically when you when you like go on a global scale, like, oh, I want to make sure that everyone is okay. But how do you actually how does one do that? Who, who gets to take accountability for making that happen? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, And I think it's maybe one of the reasons that we haven't achieved a solution is because there's no one answer. Uh, I mean, I think the answer is sort of everybody. I mean, it seems like it needs to be something that federal governments are looking out for. Um, But the way countries are structured, oftentimes federal governments will offload responsibilities to provinces or states. Um, And then at municipal levels as well, you need municipal governments ensuring that whatever region they're looking after uh, is adequately resourced. You've got multiple tiers of government that need to be committed to this. And the reality is that's just not going to be the case uh, right now. There's a lot of governments that just aren't in a position at all three of those levels to ensure that their citizens have adequate access to housing. So I think you really do see a place for NGOs and other organizations um, really stepping in uh, and helping to uh, work together and get um, kind of kickstart the process. You know, if you can get a country on the way to uh, a place where people are adequately housed, if you can get them far enough, I suspect there will be a point at which um, a local or state or provincial or federal government is eventually able to take over. Um, But that's where you see a lot of these philanthropies um, working is kind of trying to be that catalyst, trying to be the spark um, and make those initial early investments um, really help get things going, get the proverbial ball rolling in the hopes that, uh, you know, if we do this right and we do this well, it'll be a lot more sustainable over time and you can transition control of something like that over to uh, the the many tiers of government who really ought to ultimately be responsible for it. I totally agree. And it's it's interesting to also to see um, things on a much smaller scale. Right now, there seems to be a little bit of 
spark going around about around the hashtag something along the lines of trash cleanup and people are getting inspired to go take mm -hmm. dirty rivers and you know dirty rivers and dirty places all over like Nepal and India all the way to South America where they're like taking a before picture of how trashy some place was and then all the trash bags that they're cleaning it up and it's inspiring more and more people to go clean up the place around them and I know it's yeah. not the same as far as like talking about housing, but getting people invested in their own, um, you know, communities to to help clean them up and making sure that, you know, places are good for their neighbors and, you know, yeah. the, their surrounding villages. It's cool. You know, it, it starts in your own backyard. And the reality is that, you know, some of us are very privileged to get to travel and see the world for our jobs. I mean, I go all over. I think there's only, you know, one continent that I haven't hung out on yet in Antarctica. Um, I'm sure I'll end up there sometime as soon as I get malaria, <laughs> which will be the result of climate change, perhaps. But the thing is, most people don't get to travel the world, and most people uh, spend a lot of their lives very, very close to home. And you, you want those people to make sure they're, they can be a part of making a global difference, too. And it really does start in your own backyard. You can get out there and make change. Um, so I live mostly in Chicago, and I've been so impressed with there's a really strong civic technology and sort of civic hack space going there, where on a weekly basis, people uh, from all over the city get together. It's every Tuesday night. Um, they have this hack night event where they take local data sets, municipal data sets, and use them for good. Um, things like mapping, making a little app so you can easily find where the nearest place to get a flu shot is near you. And sometimes really sophisticated projects come out of that as well like projects like can we be better at modeling um, when our beaches in Chicago are going to have high E. coli levels. So it's really interesting example of just citizens from the community coming together to tackle local problems. In this case, instead of going out and cleaning up trash, they're using data to, to build out systems that make uh, the city a better place. So there's a lot of civic engagement happening at a bunch of different levels. And uh, yeah, I really hope to see more of that. I think the more digital world we live in, the more we're connected to each other digitally, um, the more we feel a sort of shared responsibility to, to take care of the place that we live in. So speaking of sharing, you have shared knowledge in a different way, really about your expertise and disease in a book. And before I, we ask you about your favorite reads or lessons, could you tell us a little bit about your book, It's Catching? Uh, yeah, I wrote this a few years ago. Um, you know, I've done a lot of science television work uh, back in my native Canada, and I would often get requests from uh, publishers to say, hey, we like you on TV. We'd love to see you write a, a science book for adults. And I always turn them down because the writing is a lot of work, and writing a book for adults is a lot, a lot of work. And I never really felt like I had it in me, so I'd always politely turn down these requests. But uh, one day, I got an email from Owl Kids Books and Owl Kids are a children's science book publisher, a children's book publisher. Um, growing up, they had uh, two magazines, one called Chickadee for very young readers and one called Owl for slightly older readers that really introduced kids to the world of science and nature. And I grew up loving these magazines. 
So when Owl came calling, you know, beloved publisher of these magazines I, I had adored so much as a kid, I couldn't say no. So, of course, um, you know, you're supposed to write what you know, as the adage says, and I know infectious diseases. Uh, so basically put together this kid's book. It's sort of geared for 8 to 12-year-old readers uh, called It's Catching the Infectious World of Germs and Microbes, and it's kind of a walk through the microbial world. There's obviously a focus on some of the interesting germs that are out there because uh, I find them fascinating. Plus, kids like that kind of ooh, yuck, grossology sort of thing. Um, but it also talks about something that I think is really important to communicate, and it's that we are surrounded by microbes. They're in us, they're on us, um, they're everywhere. And almost all of them are either harmless or actually beneficial. You know, they help us digest our food, uh, access different nutrients, they help keep us safe from other pathogens. They produce energy for us. Like microbes are incredibly valuable. So it's a book that tries to kind of balance the like, uh, ooh, yuck, infectious disease stuff, growth with the whole, oh, wow, turns out there's this whole hidden microbial universe around us and it's actually incredibly cool and interesting. So it was really fun to write and I've actually got a second one uh, coming out. I turned in the draft for it uh, fairly recently um, and this one is a walk through the human digestive system. So it starts with uh, you know food entering your mouth and ends with the poop that comes out and uh, what happens in between. So it's been fun to write. Uh, I don't know how many more I'll do. Um, they're not as much work as writing a book for adults, but they certainly do take up a lot of time. But uh, definitely they're fun to do. And I love seeing um, letters or pictures or reactions from my young readers. It's just so, so, so gratifying. So I have to tell you something. I actually did not know who you were until I got this book. Our son caught a very, well, caught, is probably a it, bad use of the word, was diagnosed with a really rare disease that very severely turned his life upside down. It had no known etiology, no understanding of the genesis of this disease, obviously. And he asked a question about a year and a half later about about how that came to be. And so um, I, I read him your book. It's catching. And he, he appreciated as a young boy the grossology factor, as you say, um, mm -hmm. but also the humor. You have something in there about the super sneeze. Um, there was even something about snot, which that word probably doesn't belong in any podcast. <laughs> but um, he just really appreciated it. And I said, you know, Carter, when they figure out what's going on, it's it's going to be something like this from the ID side of what you said. I said, they just don't know any of that stuff right now. There's not a scientist or a researcher that knows or understands. And so I started following you on Twitter. And then I saw that you went to work for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I was recently at a CDC meeting with someone from your organization, Dr. John Maudlin. And, mm -hmm. um, and so I just want to say that I really appreciate your work. And, you know, he had a G-tube, too. Um, so when I hear you have a book about human digestive disease, I'm thinking about all the mom's <laughs> groups I'm in that can use this It'll to be explain to their little ones more about that. Because yeah. um, there's so many complications that come with that. But I just want to say thank you. I know you did it and you wrote what you knew. But 
it also had a really unique place in, in my life. And that's how I started following you. It's actually part of the reason we made our social media manager hunt you down. Um, so <laughs> thank you. Thank you for doing that. I know, I know you did that. And I know you just, you know, talked about kind of the impetus and premise behind it for you. But I wanted to share with you, you know, getting to do that and reading about, you know, the super sneeze and snot and the, the genesis of infectious disease in a way that he could understand. And it wasn't quite 100 pages. And he was a really smart little kid. Um, it, it just was really relatable. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that those stories are why you do this. And those stories are why you work in public health and global health, um, making sure that we can answer those questions. And so when your son has a question, why, why did this happen? We as science, we as medicine want to be able to provide those answers. It's that curiosity. It's that discovery. But more than anything else, it's that desire to help and make sure that everybody can be happy and healthy and just secure. On that note, we are building a reading list and we're trying to kind of alley-oop our listeners to quick start some of their learning if they're going in a healthcare or health IT direction. So I'm curious to know from you if there are any books that you would recommend our listeners read. If it's uh, fiction, nonfiction, you know, something that you prefer to listen to versus read, or if it's a blog or podcast, that'd be too. But we would love to know your recommendations if you're willing to share. Oh, for sure. Uh, this is a bit of a tough one because, uh, you know, I always make sure to maintain work-life balance. I have a pretty crazy work life. So I generally have a policy that uh, when I'm engaging in leisure time pursuits, like reading or listening to a podcast, I generally try and keep it as far away from work as possible. Uh, that being said, there's a couple of great things out there. I personally, I find information visualization really, really fascinating. And um, um, the, the principles behind why we communicate um, information in particular ways, like what are the best ways to visually represent data. Um, and so there's quite a few books in the InfoViz space that I really, really like a lot. Um, my friend Tamara Munster uh, literally wrote the textbook on information visualization. So her book is a great resource. And there's a bioinformatician sort of statistician scientist that I follow on Twitter. I've been following for ages, Klaus Wilkie, uh, and he just wrote a very simple uh, primer, an introduction to data visualization, and the entire book is available free online. So I really like those two resources a lot. Um, I actually find no matter what you do in life, um, your job probably involves presenting data or communicating data, so it's a skill that we can all sort of level up on. Um, certainly one of my favorite books in the infectious disease space, and I still have this book on my bookshelf. You know, I bought it back in my teenage years in that, you know, Dustin Hoffman outbreak infatuation phase, but still love it. Uh, a book by Lori Garrett called The Coming Plague. It is basically a walkthrough of many of the emerging infectious diseases that appeared in the 20th century um, from, you know, fairly well-known things like HIV AIDS, Ebola virus, uh, Legionnaire's disease to some more obscure things like the 1976 swine flu outbreak or toxic shock syndrome associated with tampons. Um, it's a really interesting book, not only because it tells you the science and the sort of epidemiology behind these things, 
But more importantly, it tells you about the people um, that were at the center of these stories, the epidemiologists, the disease detectives, the doctors who are really on the front lines trying to figure these things out. So I think it makes for a really riveting read about infectious disease. I'd say those are probably a couple of my favorite uh, proper reading resources. And then I do have to say, um, on Twitter, some of my favorite accounts are aggregator accounts that sort of collect mentions around particular themes. And two that I always find really interesting, uh, there's one account dedicated to open science, and there's another account dedicated to public health data science. And I find that the uh, tweets that are retweeted and shared by those accounts are fascinating. They're the ones that I'm always favoriting, always saying, oh, I got to look this up later. Um, so nice little sources of kind of easily digestible information. But yeah, open science and public health data science. My reading list, I'm feverishly taking notes and <laughs> I love that you said it's going to be filled up. <laughs> yeah. No and then, yeah, yeah, no at all there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Jennifer, if people want to find out more about you, the work you're doing with the Gates Foundation, or, you know, what are your social handles? What's the best place to connect with you or find more information? Definitely the best place to find out what I'm up to professionally is on Twitter. I'm at Jennifer Gardy, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-G-A-R-D-Y. Um, I'm pretty regularly tweeting. And yeah, it's a whole mix of like malaria, genomic epidemiology, data science, the occasional musing about academia and research in general. And I'm not going to lie, uh, sometimes you get some cat and dog videos in there too. Uh, I am on Instagram as well, but honestly, that one tends not to be very interesting as far as science goes. That's largely pictures of uh, where I've been traveling and what I've been eating and drinking. So uh, Twitter is the best place to find me. Um, and yeah, reach out anytime on the internet. Uh, I have a pretty busy life these days, it seems, but you can always make time for a bit of Twittering and, you know, the coffee shop line or really waiting to get on a plane and always happy to um, you know, reply back to some interesting messages there. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing about what you're doing, your background. Thank you for being so articulate and sharing with our listeners. Oh, it was my pleasure. This was such a fun conversation to have. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been a real treat. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes. Or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon. Thank you to Aria Marketing for sponsoring this episode. You can find more about Aria Marketing at www.ariamarketing.com.